You're listening to the Hub City Church Podcast. To learn more about Hub City Church, including our gathering times, you can check out our website at albanyhubcity.com. How's it going? That's a pretty uplifting passage, isn't it? Feel pretty good. Um, well, guys, as you just heard, there's a lot in today, and it's ironic because I created the preaching calendar, so when I got to it, and I was like, 14 to 50, like, who's making me do this? Oh, it was me. Um, but it's good to see you guys. I'm excited. There's a lot of good stuff in there today, so I just want to get to it. Uh, one thing I want to remind us about, remind us, anytime we're reading Mark, remember that this is uh, Peter, Peter's eyewitness account of his encounters with Jesus that he is telling Mark, this author, and Mark is writing down. Okay, so Jesus, remember last week we looked at, Steve walked us through brilliantly, where where Jesus took only Peter, James, and John with him up onto the mountaintop. You guys remember this? This is a transfiguration, really incredible passage. If you didn't get to hear it um, or read through that, go read it, and then also go back and listen to last week's podcast. Um, or watch it. But Peter was just with Jesus in one of the most incredible displays of Jesus' Christ-hoodness, right, in the transfiguration. He probably could have stayed up there forever. He said Jesus was brilliantly bright. He was there. It was a, it was a close group in the midst of this God thing happening. He could have stayed there forever. Um, and my question to you guys, have you ever been on a vacation or a little getaway, or even like an awesome movie, and it was so good that you completely forgot what real life was like. Have you ever had that? Where like you just, you're such in a blissful time of like, that was so good, and then you come back home, and it's just so bad. (laughs) Have you ever had that? Where you come back to chaos, and you're like, no, I thought it would be better, right? Well, the people, listen, they come back from the mountain, okay? They're there. Peter was with Jesus. It was this incredible, incredible experience. They come back, and what do they come down to? They're coming down to the scribes, arguing with crowds of people and the disciples, a distraught father, a demon-possessed boy, and utterly defeated disciples. Okay, this is not from this mountaintop high experience to this. This is not exactly what you want to come home to. So Jesus, in just his brilliant teacher mode, he's kind of looking for like, okay, where do I start with this? So he starts with the argument. Okay, he asks, what are you arguing about? This is chapter 9, 17, 18. And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has had a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able to. So his distraught father blurts out that he tried to bring his son to you, Jesus, because there was this evil spirit in him that makes him mute and does self-harm to him. But you weren't here, so I had to settle with your disciples, and they couldn't help me. Okay, the father, he took his son, he went to see Jesus, and he couldn't find him, so he put that expectation on the disciples. And just real quick, this isn't a main point today, but it's just clear that the disciples could not replace Jesus. Okay, the disciples could not replace Jesus. Jesus isn't about just giving superpowers to people and then walking away. Jesus is always the source of the power. He cannot be replaced. So the argument 
was most likely between the frustrated disciples and the scribes who were thinking they weren't orthodox enough, which ironically, if the scribes were so orthodox, why didn't they just cast out the demon? But it's interesting to note that this spirit, uh, it says it made the boy mute. Now, in Jewish belief in exorcism, uh, it's interesting, they had to name, there's a belief that you had to name the demon or spirit to cast it out. So you had to call it what it is so that you had power over its name and then you could call it out. But because this particular demon kept the boy mute, they couldn't figure out the name. Therefore, this spirit was believed to be uh, impossible to exercise. So verse 19, Jesus answers them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. What's fascinating about this scene is a familiarity it would have been to anyone paying attention. Okay, think about it. What story comes to mind where a leader takes three others, goes up on a mountain, has this incredible God experience, and then comes back down to the people in disarray trying to do things in their own power? Anybody? Moses, golden calf. Yes, you get a candy bar. Did you say that? Nice, candy bar. I'll get you one. All right, Exodus 32, right? Uh, this is Exodus 32, and the Lord, verse 7, and the Lord said to Moses, go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf, have worshiped it and sacrificed to it and said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Okay, it's just this same moment, except now it's Jesus. He comes back down this mountaintop experience to his disciples trying to do the work in their own power and frustrated that it's not working. Jesus quotes here the faithless generation. It's kind of a mashup between Moses and Deuteronomy and the prophets Isaiah and Jeremiah, where they're all kind of alluding to this concept that Jesus has been talking about in Mark, where the people who have eyes but do not see who have ears, but do not hear. They're hearing Jesus, but they're not quite getting his heart. They're with Jesus, but they're not seeing who he really is. So verse 20, they brought the boy to him, and when the Spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. Okay, two things. First, when the enemy goes down, which make no mistake with Jesus, the enemy does go down, it goes down swinging, okay, getting one last convulsion out of the boy, um, throwing him on the ground, right? When Jesus is near, the demons come out. But this sometimes, it can make it worse right before it makes it better. Secondly, look at the posture of this, right? Even if you, even if you don't the, believe if the Spirit is evil or whatever, the Spirit is still laying down before the Lord, like Jesus, the commander, the authority over the spiritual realm. The spirit throws the boy down. Yes, to probably hurt the boy, but also the spirit can't help but lay before the Lord. The father of the boy looks at Jesus and pleads, verse 22, but if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Now, if you've been following with us in Mark, you'll see that that word Jesus had compassion on the people, that happens over and over and over again. So Jesus, he has every right to see the audacity in this statement. Jesus, if you could just barely care for your people, right? Like we've read that so many times. This is a core characteristic of who Jesus is because it's a core characteristic of who God is. He is the compassionate God. 
I almost hear Jesus laughing when he says back, if you can, like, all things are possible for one who believes. See, the question isn't, does Jesus have the authority and the power to heal this boy? Absolutely, no doubt. The question is rather placed back on the Father. Do you believe that Jesus can do this? And I, for one, am so thankful for this man's response. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. If you don't get anything else today, just write that down. That is the prayer of prayers, I feel like. Right? I am so thankful for this to be in our scriptures, especially in comparison with who we should be looking at, right? the scribes and the Pharisees, the ones who seem to be so, uh, so righteous. Right? They're so full of their own self-righteousness that questioning the strength of their faith would have been offensive. They would have gotten mad. In fact, they do over and over and over again. But this father, this humble father, knows his faith is flawed. He knows there's holes in his beliefs, and he's okay with it in terms of, God, you need to help me. In a sermon published in 1904 by um, Charles Spurgeon, where he talks about Christ's superior power despite our feeble faith. I love this quote. It says, while men have no faith, they are unconscious of their unbelief. But as soon as they get a little bit of faith, then they begin to be conscious of the greatness of their unbelief. And I love that. Instead of trying to push forward and the father saying, no, I, I have faith. I, I can do this and put on a good show for Jesus. He just eats the humble pie. And he asks Jesus to help him even in areas where he doesn't believe or he doesn't even know he doesn't believe. Now, just real quick, in real life, like, have, have you done that lately? Have you spent some time just being, God, I, I just, where am I unbelieving in you? Help my unbelief. I know areas where I believe this. I know areas where I, th this is true for me, but where am I unbelieving? I hope that we're people that make it a practice to regularly confess to God that there's unbelief in us and to say, God, show me my unbelief. Help me with that unbelief. I think there's a power in that. So Jesus commands, back to our passage, verse 25, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. See, Jesus shows his authority over all spiritual powers. He doesn't have to name this demon because the demon's name is not what has the authority. Jesus' name has the authority. Amen? Right? Jesus is the one. It's in his name that he casts out this demon, the spirit. The spirit makes one last effort and leaves, and the boy is renewed. So remember, they're coming off of this mountaintop experience to this very non-peaceful, disruptive experience. But Jesus, already he's silenced the scribes, he's calmed the father, and he's healed the boy. So the last bit here is next is he's, he's going to focus on the defeated disciples. Imagine the walk of shame they had. They had failed to do anything spectacular, to show that they had anything to show for being the disciples of Jesus. Then Jesus shows up, does everything perfectly right, and now they have to follow him home with their tail between their legs. I've been there. I'm there a lot, right? Verse 28, and when he entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? Like, I don't understand. Why could we not do this thing? And here's where it's confusing. It wasn't just a pride question. Back in Mark chapter 6, I'm going to tell you two verses. Mark chapter 6, verse 7, Jesus, and he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. 
And a few verses later in 13, and they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed. Right? They, they've experienced this already. Like they were able to do some of this stuff. So why didn't this power, why didn't it work now? Verse 29, he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Some translations include prayer and fasting, which is interesting. The authority that was given to the disciples was never meant to be used without the source of the authority, right? That is, as soon as they could do miracles and wonders on their own, as soon as they thought they could, they, it wouldn't work. Apparently, they were trying to cast the Spirit out without praying, without prayer. And it's not that prayer and fasting makes them more spiritual, but what it is is it's the practice of being dependent upon God. That's what prayer and fasting is. Prayer and fasting is a way of saying I'm in complete dependence on God for my sustenance and for my strength. An admittance that any power is going to come from God, not from themselves. So the only one who's humble enough to admit this wasn't the disciples or the scribes or the Pharisees. It was the father of the boy, the father who didn't have perfect righteousness. Tim Keller, in his book, Jesus the King, calls it, he had repentant helplessness, right? This was how he was able to access the presence of God through Jesus. That helplessness is the belief there's nothing that anyone can do to improve a bad situation. Repentant helplessness is maybe there is, but I just can't think of it. Someone else has to show me a different way. And that is what the Father asked of Jesus. So they're on their way back through Galilee, this time hoping to be stealthy. Jesus doesn't want them to be known in the area. He again reminds them of his fate, a.k.a. what the Christ has come on earth to do. Verse 31, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. Now, this might sound familiar because we looked at this last week. And if you remember, when uh, he said this, Peter took him aside and rebuked him. And then he got re-rebuked, reverse rebuked by Jesus saying, get behind me, Satan. Okay, which is intense, right? It's intense today, and it would have been super (laughs) intense then, right? So this time, as he's saying the same phrase again, verse 32, they did not understand the saying, and now they were afraid to ask him. No one's rebuking Jesus this time. Like, no one wants to get called out. They're pretty gun-shy after Peter got it handed to him, right? So when they didn't know what to say, they moved on from there to Capernaum, which is they're getting closer and closer to Jerusalem, closer and closer to where Jesus says, this is where my fate is going. They start talking about what is interesting to them on the way. And what's interesting to them? Who among us is the greatest? They get inside where they're staying, and I just love this. Jesus turns and immediately asks, what were you discussing on the way? Ooh, like busted, (laughs) you know, that's not good. But they, verse 34, but they kept silent for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. It's just so interesting that Jesus just talked about himself being handed over and killed. And here now his disciples are talking about how how that would never happen to them because they're the greatest, right? They're too strong. They're too tough. They've been given this taste of power over evil spirits. So Jesus, he does something interesting here. He doesn't just rip on them, okay? Like a good rabbi, like a good teacher, he makes his disciples, his students sit down, and he teaches them. And he says, verse 35, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. 
if anyone would be first, so you want to be the greatest? If you want to be the greatest, you need to be the last of all and servant of all. And then he displays someone who does not rely on their own strength. In fact, literally inherently is completely dependent upon someone else, a child. Right? Using this kid as the analogy for dependence, verse 37, he says, For whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not, hit, not me, but him who sent me. Right? Like, unlike the thinking of the disciples, Jesus teaches that true greatness is not in strength, it's in serving others. It's not in self-gratification, it's in self-sacrifice. Now, what's interesting, in ancient Israel, children are to be, quote, seen and not heard. Okay, they, would be, uh, they were to be efficient, they were to be a helpful, right? They were, they were not considered important characters in society until they got to a certain age, and then they were supposed to be perfect, right? So for Jesus to lift one up and say, this is the kind of person that you should consider the greatest, that if you can have a compassionate heart towards this child, the seemingly insignificant thing, then you will start to understand what it means to love others self-sacrificially. And this isn't just a way to follow what Jesus did, but a way to honor and receive God the Father. Now, it's interesting, their response, potentially to make themselves look better after this teaching and their embarrassment, because they were so off of the Jesus brand, they try to make it up. Verse 38, John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because they were not following us. I just love it. You can hear the pride a little bit, right? See, Jesus, we did a good thing. Like someone was trying to do good in the world, but he was not a pre-approved Jesus follower. So it doesn't count. He was not following the way that we do it. Like no, no doubt they were a tad salty that their exorcisms didn't work and this person is just going to town, right? Verse 39, but Jesus said, do not stop him for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. Think about it. If this person was evil, they're the worst villain of all time, right? Going around and wrongly aiding people and casting out demons, right? This is not the case, okay? So this person was most likely a believer and in faith because the only way to cast out spirits is by the power of God, right? The power, this, this person was apparently so far removed from discipleship with Jesus in, in, in the inner circle, and yet the power of God through him was still significant. That's more about the power of Jesus than anything else. That's why Jesus, knowing this, he can say, verse 40, for the one who is not against us is for us. Right? The casting out of demons is only done by the power of God. So not knowing this man, but hearing of his fruit is enough for Jesus to assume he's doing it right. 41, for truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. This is an interesting transition. In my mind, casting out demons is not comparable to handing out cups of water. Okay, these are not like the same amount of servitude here, okay? But Jesus gives this example of saying, even if someone did something as minuscule and seemingly insignificant as handing you a cup of water just because you are in Christ, it's still a good thing. And as extreme as that example is, in smallness, he swings the pendulum the complete opposite way. And, by the by, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. 
okay, so we went from handing out a cup of water to it'd be better for you to be drowned than if you cause a child to sin. Okay, Jesus is like swinging this pendulum hard here. He keeps going, verse 43. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. Now, unfortunately, in this passages, over the century, this has been taken very literal. And a practice of maiming the bodies in the name of Christ was a legit thing. Okay, which is, I do not believe that is what Christ's intention was here. And we'll, we'll look at that in a second. But going with the extreme nature of his analogies, he starts out with the general. Okay, if you cause someone like this child to sin, it'd be better to be drowned. And then he gets more specific with hand and foot and eyes. And again, the juxtaposition between something so small, like a cup of water being a good thing, um, to even your eyes could cause you to sin, and it would be better to, have your, to not have your eyes and continue on this path of destruction. Right? This is the urgent teaching of Jesus saying, radically deal with sin. Radically deal and stop whatever is aiding sin's reign in, the life, in your life. Now, it's interesting, hell, whenever we hear it, it brings up images, it brings up theology, it brings up all sorts of stuff, right? Hell is an interesting word here. Of course, in theology, uh, it, it, it means this eternal separation from God. It's something likened to what we read in Revelation 21.8, this lake that burns with fire and sulfur, okay? That's probably the picture that comes to your mind as to me. And for us, it's kind of this nebulous eternity of just suffering and pain, for ancient Israel, what's interesting in this context, and most likely for the first readers of Mark's gospel, it actually comes from a very physical place. Okay, the original word here is the Greek word Gehenna. Okay, Gehenna. From, so it's from the Valley of Hinnom, which this is a valley along the south and kind of west side of the city of Jerusalem on the outside of the gates, which is used in Old Testament times when people were worshiping other gods and doing detestable things for human sacrifices to the pagan god Moloch, okay? You can write all this down. You don't have to remember it, but it is really interesting, right? And during this time, God used the prophet Jeremiah to rebuke the people many, many times. There's many passages we could have quoted today about this, saying, obviously, this is not the heart of God. But towards the end, he tells his people, you're going to get conquered. You're going to be exiled. And here's why. This is one of the passages, Jeremiah 32, 35. Because they built the high places of Baal in the valley of the son of Hinnom to offer up their sons and daughters to Moloch, though I did not command them, nor did it enter my mind that they should do this abomination to cause Judah to sin. This practice was eventually put to a stop I think by the King Josiah, I think. And the Valley of Hinnom came to then also be a place used where human excrement and human trash were disposed of and burned. So no more child sacrifices, woo But now it's just trash and garbage and nastiness, right? Because the people were so numerous, this was, of course, a constant thing, a daily, multiple times a day, stuff just getting thrown over into this valley. And what they would do is, because of the stench, because of the littering of all sorts of stuff, they would just set these fires. And these fires would just burn everything. But because it's so constant, it, the fires would never go out. 
And because of the stuff that it was, there was worms and stuff that would never have its, its sustenance depleted. They always had something to feed on. So it, this valley came to be symbolic for this place of divine punishment. Okay, there was the, mad, the beautiful city, there was Jerusalem where God's people were, and then there was outside Jerusalem where it was just fire and worms and nastiness, okay? So for ancient Israel, and now you and I, we have this picture where, where hell as an origin and, and this mind picture where it's just this valley of nastiness right outside the blessed city of Jerusalem. So picture with me, you're standing at the walls of Jerusalem on the inside, and you're looking down at this just horrendous pit of fire and worm and nastiness, right? And then you hear this teaching back in 43, and if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell. So you're looking down at the burning pits of excrement and trash and see, you know what? At the end of the day, it would be better to just cut off sacrifice apart than for your whole person to be thrown down into that valley. Okay, now you have that picture of like, yes, it would be ultimately better. Neither is great, right? But it would be better. And this, of course, makes sense why Jesus now would quote Isaiah saying, verse 48, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Now remember, the first idea of Gehenna, it was this, it was this uh, wrong ritual and practice, but it was this ritual and practice of sacrifices, right? And of course, with the concept of it being better to sacrifice a hand versus your whole body, Jesus now finishes, and we'll finish today, on doubling down on the sacrificial language. Verse 49, you guys still with me? All right, cool. For everyone will be salted with fire. Why did we go to salt all of a sudden? Like we just talked about excrement and trash and nastiness and now we're salt. Like this is not, these, are, these don't mix, right? But going back to core Levitical law for sacrifices, Leviticus 2.13, you shall season all your grain offerings with salt. You shall not let the salt of the covenant with your God be missing from your grain offering. With all your offerings, you shall offer salt. Interesting right? In light of that passage, um, this verse that we read in Mark alone has uh, over a dozen different interpretations, but I want to give you two that are considered to be the most believed about for everyone will be salted with fire. First one is interpretation sees the sacrificial salt as a symbol of the covenant relationship that children of God had with, uh, with God, children of Israel had with God, which culminates for every disciple of Jesus as the salt of the covenant being this divine fire or the Holy Spirit that we get from John the Baptist in Matthew 3:11. He says, he, being Jesus, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Okay, so stay with me. Every follower of Christ, in other words, will receive the Holy Spirit, and this will be their saltiness or their seasoning as it purifies as it preserves, and as it adds flavor to our lives, thus making our living sacrifice acceptable to God. Okay? That's one interpretation. One top interpretation. The second top interpretation is it's more about trials and tribulations. Less focused on the Holy Spirit. It's there, of course, but more on trials and tribulations. In the previous verses, the various members of the body must be metaphorically sacrificed, if need be, to enter into the kingdom of God. Here in verse 49, it's more of the total self in mind, right? Every true disciple is to be a total sacrifice to God. 
and assault always accompanied the temple sacrifices. So fire, in the examples, would be persecution, trials, suffering. That will accompany the true disciples' sacrifices. And if this is Mark's meaning, this saying must have had special meaning and importance to the original audience. Remember who Mark's original audience was? It wasn't to us necessarily. It was to um, the persecuted church in Rome. Think about this. The audience Mark is writing to, persecuted church in Rome. Rome was tolerant of religion as long as it accepted all different beliefs and as long as it included Caesar as one of the deities, and you didn't fight any of the politics, okay? But this is a problem for monotheistic Christians, right? Things got real bad for them, right? These Christians were being hunted, harassed, beaten, captured, killed. In fact, there was this emperor called Nero in Rome in the 8050s-ish. Legend has it he despised Christians so much that he would chase them down, he would capture them, he would then burn them alive, and he would use the light of their bodies as their, the torches for their meeting places, okay? So do you think, as a first century Christian, reading the Gospel of Mark, when it says everyone would be salted with fire, <laughs> do you think that would ring any bells for them? Right? It's not always, it's, it, for us it's uncomfortable reading it, but for them it would be very uncomfortable. Right? But also it helped them understand the purifying fires of persecution were not to be thought of as foreign for their vocation as a Christian. Right? Because everyone will be salted with fire. This will provide hope in a very dark time for the church to not feel alone, to feel unified in its mission to reach the world, regardless of the persecution. By using salt as the application, it's like Jesus is saying, just as under the law, every sacrifice is to be salted, so the living sacrifice my followers bring to me will be seasoned with suffering and tribulations. Verse 50, salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again. So going with our two top applications, remember there's many, many interpretations, but that kind of two top ones, it's either by trial and tribulation or by dependence on the Holy Spirit. Now you may find yourself leaning towards one or the other of those different options, but for me, I believe in a God, this is just my own personal, I believe in a God of paradox. Okay, I believe in a God where it's not an either-or situation, but it's a both-and. Meaning for me, if I lean dependently on the Holy Spirit, he will lead me in the way of the Lord, which is often countercultural to the way of the world. The world does not like what is different. The world does not like anything set apart. So most likely there will be trial and tribulation when you go the way of God, right? Salt itself was crucial to ancient Israel in terms of preserving food but not, not from going bad and being wasted, but salt then, it wasn't purified like we have now, like not table salt, right? It had a shelf life. It could go bad. In fact, Luke, uh, Luke chapter 14, verse 34, he, he talks about the same exact idea, but he adds something to it. He talks about a different type of salt. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? This is what he adds. It is, no, it is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So we shouldn't think about like table salt. We need to start thinking about salt like fertilizer. Okay. Now, Steve, he's not here today, but he's our resident gardener. <laughs> he, he would tell you all about fertilizer. But what I know about fertilizer is it helps other things grow, helps other things flourish. 
right? The fertilizer isn't the main focus, but you use fertilizer as the catalyst for growth. Okay, Jesus is warning his disciples not to lose that characteristic in them that brought life to the world, that prevented its decay, that is not to lose their spirit of devotion and self-sacrifice that he has been teaching them since day one. This is what makes them fertilizer for where they're placed on earth. This is why we can end today where he says, have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. So that was a lot. But for the disciples at the time and his followers later, reading this narrative, now of course for us today, the conclusions are all the same, right? It is surrender and it is dependence on God. It's his strength in our weaknesses. It's his fullness when we are emptied. See, this chapter shows us that following Jesus isn't just about a personal relationship with God, but it's recognizing that there is a war going on. There's so much going on that's bigger than us. And just as God is at work in the world, there are forces of evil and sin that also are at work and want nothing but to kill, steal, and destroy. The amazing thing about where we live is most of us today aren't afraid of being burned alive because you're a Christian. Most of us today right now in Albany are not afraid of that. Most of us are not worried that because you're here in church this morning that you're never going to see your families again. Right? That's comforting. Okay? We live in a place where that's comforting. This, that is a privilege that not everyone in the world has and definitely didn't have in the history of the church. But the real problem then that we might face is that there's little to no urgency. Okay, there's little sacrifice for us to even be here this morning other than having to get out of bed. <laughs> you know, it was hard for me this morning. So the question for us this morning to wrestle with is has your salt lost its saltiness? Where's your saltiness? Right, or another way to say it is how are you contributing to the flourishing of what God has given you? How are you being fertilizer and where God has placed you? And if we look at all the nuggets and combine them all today, we looked at the, the spirit that could only be delivered by prayer and fasting, meaning dependence on God, that we need to treat sin seriously, radically remove what is aiding in our destruction. And Jesus at the end saying, have salt and be at peace with everyone. And I love the grace of Jesus, because wherever you are at in each of those major concepts Jesus touched on in the story earlier, the good news is that just as the father of the demon-possessed boy came honestly to Jesus with his struggles of unbelief, we can too. Just as the disciples came to Jesus with their inability to perform the miracles, we can come to Jesus. We have a God who is tender-hearted. We have a God who has deep compassion for us. He would not shame us or reprimand us for our neediness. Instead, he eagerly awaits to supply where our faith is lacking. He gently reminds us to take our eyes off our own abilities and back on him as our source and our strength. The disciples are slowly coming to find the sufficiency of this Messiah and the dependency required to walk in his ways. Not just to look to their Messiah when needed, when you're stressed or you're anxious or just look there, but to keep their eyes fixed on him. And I pray that this close path with the Savior, that can be our prayer this morning as we respond to that God. That was a lot, guys. Thank you. Let me pray and let's move towards response where we can sing, we can pray, 
we can give and we can receive communion. Remember Christ's death and resurrection for us so that we can sit under his grace, that it is his strength in our weakness. It is his grace that saves us, not by works, so that we shall not boast. Let me pray and let's respond to that, God.